Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Money and me on your money only on Money FM 89.3. I'm Michelle Martin. Warren Buffett has released his annual letter to Berkshire Hathaway shareholders. He's a 90-year-old investing legend and he's been publishing the letter for six decades. It's become a must-read for investors worldwide. And right now, we're going to have some help breaking down key insights from that letter from an investor who perhaps has gotten closer to Warren Buffett than any one of us. Arun Pai is Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. Good morning, Arun. Good morning, Michelle. Sadly, not close enough to him, but yes. (laughs) (laughs) Some of that Buffett shine, I think, has rubbed off. All right. So, uh, you know, the letter has been lauded. It's also been criticized as being tone deaf because it doesn't mention, uh, you know, the pandemic beyond once, I think. It makes mention to the pandemic. And, you know, it says bonds is um, the place to stay away from, including junk bonds. And, of course, we understand the letter was written some time back. It takes some time to put these things together. But let's start, before I get into it, I want to start with your key takeaways, Arun. Sure. So I think the primary uh, point this letter was trying to drive home, which has been very similar to at least the last 10 to 20 years uh, worth of his letters, as far as I can remember, is that he is extremely bullish America. He is, you know, the the number one cheerleader for the country. He believes that regardless of the ups and downs, political upheavals, there'll always be problems in the country. But he fundamentally believes that the way the structure of the country, coupled with the aspect of capitalism, has been set up in the U.S., is by far the best place to allocate capital. So I think throughout the letter, very you know, he addressed a number of his, be it albeit smaller investments in the Midwest, from railroads to candy stores to furniture marts. He was really trying to drive home the point that negativity, sure, it will always be there in the financial markets, but it's extremely important for the long-term investors to try and take advantage of this volatility, mm. advantage of the fact that you know if someone is being negative to the U.S. I remember when uh, this credit agency dropped uh, the AAA rating of the U.S. Mm. by one notch or a couple of notches, and the stock market dived like 7% on that day. This was, I think, like two or three years ago. And uh, Warren Buffett came out a couple of days later saying, I think they invested the most amount of money in a single day than they ever have in the past. Wow. So I think this aspect Mm. of the U.S. being number one was, you know, spread throughout the letter. A couple of other key takeaways. I think the, the point that you brought up where the ability, the, the aspect of fixed income investors currently, mm-hmm. the future uh, investment outlook is quite bleak. He highlights how bonds currently are trading at basically close to 0% interest. And it will be a big fallacy for investors to think that they can go out and try to you know, achieve more yield or yield hunting by going down the credit curve, which basically means uh, if the U.S. government is willing to pay me only, say, 2% for a 10-year, 30-year bond, I'm happy to give it to an XYZ company to get 5 or 8%, and I'm happy to you know, take upon their credit risk. He brings about the story of like uh, the SNL industry like 30 years ago, which nearly went to the point of bankruptcy because of this aspect of like you know, chasing greed. 
And last but not least, you know, the aspect of how to go about doing investing. Very straightforward, simple, four-method technique. Step number one, ensure that the company is within your circle of competence, which basically means you have to be able to understand what the business is doing and long-term aspects of it. And by that, I don't mean, you know, just reading like a tweet, thinking that you know about the company or the Mm -hmm. product itself, but truly understand the business in terms of supply chain, the competitive landscape, a whole host of different things. Second to that, ensure that it has a long-term competitive mode, which basically means, you know, the fact that you're living in this capitalistic society, there will always be competition knocking on your door, trying to come up with a better product, a cheaper product, a better quality service across the board. So to ensure that the company has a long-term ability to have a very solid competitive mode. Uh, Thirdly, trustworthy management. And this is, you know, like there are a couple of famous quotes along these lines where if you think an idiot can run the company, uh, don't buy it because someday an idiot will. (laughs) So he really goes after the fact that, okay, I just want the company's management to be trustworthy. And he highlights this by mentioning how a couple of his large investments back in the day were done using unaudited statements because he genuinely believed in what the management said and what the management was doing. And last but not least, you know, he obviously falls under the whole value investing umbrella. So no price, like each company or each business has a certain price beyond which the safety of margin to acquire, albeit the entire company or a certain percentage of the company might be too slim. So to ensure that there's a decent price attached to the certain asset, go about buying it. So these are his four steps that he highlighted in this shareholder letter and across the board, you know, in the past, like 60 shareholder letters, as you were saying. All right. So Warren Buffett, the 90-year-old oral Oracle of Omaha, still a firm believer in the American dream, never bet against America. You know, the line that I have to quote again, he said in the letter, in its brief 232 years of existence, there has been no incubator for unleashing human potential like America. Uh, I mean, broadly, we know that um, Berkshire Hathaway earns more, the biggest, the largest amount of U.S. assets by value than any other company in the country. Um, apart from his obvious stake in America, do you think that broadly what he's saying still holds true? Or I, I, this is stepping a little outside of things, but do you think the crumbling of the American dream is perhaps part of the reason why we've seen so much factionalizing in America, particularly between, I'm talking about the two main parties, Republicans and Democrats. So, I mean, are we still, is his U.S. centricism still justified? I would take your question and, you know, split it up into two parts. Uh, The part about the Republicans versus the Democrats, you know, obviously Trump has really brought this to the forefront, right? Just Mm. the way he goes about doing his dealings, uh, the advent of social media in today's society, and the fact that you can, you know, type out like 140 characters and it becomes this massive loudspeaker that millions of people across the world can immediately read or listen to. But make no mistake, the same warring faction 
has uh, you know existed for the past couple of centuries in the U.S., give or take, right? So from, from that aspect, I think the political upheaval is something that every country goes through. And the point I think that Buffett's trying to make is that the underlying system, capitalism, the way, uh, sure, the government will keep changing every four years, be it mayors, be it presidents, be it senators, be it uh, across the board, like the entire government structure, but the bottom line is the way the businesses run, the way the capitalistic system is set up has led to a lot of tailwinds for the country. But coming to this other part that you mentioned where potentially the American dream might be suffering, mm. that I think is something that can be a lot more interesting to say the very least of how that might shape out over the next 10 to 20 years. And that is because, and this is something that Ray Dalio, another really famous macro investor, has pointed out, mm -hmm. where capitalism has brought about, you know, a whole host of great things. If anyone asks you where would you rather live in, would it be the U.S. or would it be, say, Russia, uh, erstwhile Vietnam, Cuba, Venezuela, there's a big capitalism over communism to a very large extent. The problem comes when this concept of the American dream is dashed. And capitalism has brought about this massive dichotomy between the haves and the have-nots. And the problem being that the have-nots will not be able to get to anywhere close to what the haves have. That's the scary thing, where if you have a certain section of society that is sadly left behind because of capitalism, how does the safety nets and the government come into place to ensure that they're, you know, provided that kind of a safety net with which they can try and jump up and come back into, you know, be it getting educated, be it getting your first job at a McDonald's and then trying to climb your way up. And that's something that I think, you know, we don't know the answer to yet, because if you look at how capitalism and technology especially has come on board, it's all about trying to optimize and make your supply chains more efficient automating, digitizing, uh, having a purely seamless customer experience where a person can order pretty much anything they want under the sun by three clicks on their uh, cell phone. And not just the front end part, but throughout the supply chain, the elimination of workers, which typically are your you know, blue collared workers, work hard, work 10, 12 hours a day for their living, but that's kind of getting converted to five or 10 really smart tech people who are, who have a very good ability to code and can, you know, come up with like multi-billion dollar companies. But what, what is that leading to in terms of the demographics of how people can try and earn money? Do you need to be an MIT uh, scholar or like a Stanford scholar to be able to come up with these companies? And, uh, and then, you know, we have to see how unemployment works out across all of this, right? So I think that's a big question. And uh, to be honest, I sadly don't have an answer to it, but it seems like Warren Buffett does. And he claims that uh, the, the system is so strong, at least in the U.S., that this will still be the place to allocate capital for the foreseeable future. Oh, you, you had me at the edge of my seat there with your answer, Arun. <laughs> That was great. All right. We know that Buffett is no fan of government bonds and he believes, as you pointed out, that fixed income investors face a bleak future. Uh, but we have seen U.S. Treasury yields shifting higher, the bond market sell-off gaining pace. So does Buffett have a point? 
Uh, I mean, this letter was written, as you rightfully mentioned, right, like a couple of months ago, where uh, this whole aspect of treasury bond yields increasing uh, had not come to the light in terms of actual realized price movement. Mm. But from the aspect of the way he thinks about investing, which is much more longer term, is with interest rates so low for so long, inflation, there's a high probability of inflation rearing its ugly head. And that will come in the shape of yields increasing and eventually the Fed Reserve, not for the next one to two years, but that's not his investment horizon. So in the next, like say, five to 10 years, you would imagine, or there's a high probability, I would say, that interest rates would start normalizing. And that will really, really hurt bond investors, especially the ones who have decided not to take like a shorter term, like three month or six month interest rate risk, but more your 20-year, 30-year bond convexity risk. And that is where, you know, like buying these long-dated bonds at these really low interest rates, all it takes is a very small percentage increase in the yield to have a massive mark-to-market drop or a price drop in the underlying bonds. And, you know, that's what he highlights, right? Like, uh, at that point in time, of writing the letter, I don't know what the number is, but the number is anywhere between like 15 to $20 trillion worth of bonds that are currently in a negative interest rate. And for that matter, Berkshire Hathaway has actually taken advantage of this, given that they have a stellar balance sheet. They've actually issued debt. They've issued debt in yen. They've issued debt in euros, taking advantage of these extremely low interest rates. Now, sadly, that's not uh, an option available to investors like us, right? Because if we issue a bond under our own personal name, there are not going to be too many buyers about that, sadly. <laughs> but when you come along with Berkshire, ironclad balance sheet, take advantage of this, raise a whole bunch of capital right now, if required, and then figure out when and where to deploy it. And that's been a big problem for Berkshire. So given the size, over $100 billion of uh, cash, they've used like over $20 billion or $30 billion, $25 billion odd to buy back shares, but they've just not been able to find enough avenues to deploy that capital at current inflated prices, I should say. All right, let's look at that balance sheet and those share buybacks. So Berkshire's ramped up repurchases, as you say, to the tune of about $25 billion last year. And he's indicated in his letter that he intends to keep at it. He said that, that action increase your ownership in all of Berkshire's businesses by 5.2% without requiring you as to so much touch your wallet. So Buffett relying on buybacks instead of deals. Now, from the investor perspective, if I had 100000 dollars then is buying Berkshire Hathaway a no-brainer is it an evergreen <laughs> so when I was in uh, Omaha in 2013 to attend the Berkshire shareholder conference one person asked a question at the hall uh, they looked at they, you know they asked the, the question to Warren and Charlie and they were like who do you think is your competition mm-hmm. or who do you think has an equivalent track record to you and uh, uh, Warren Buffett, you know, made a very politically correct answer and like, like kind of passed the question along to Charlie. And Charlie said, there's this book, uh, I think it's like the greatest capital allocators uh, or ca- the greatest capital allocators, so something like that was the title of the book. And in, in that, uh, you know, obviously I came back to Singapore and I read the book and there was this, uh, so there were eight uh, uh, stories or eight chapters of the greatest capital allocators of all time. And one of them was the CEO of Capital Cities. What this gentleman did, 
he knew that the equity markets or Mr. Market, as uh, Benjamin Graham keeps saying, it's a managed depressive, right? The share price of a stock can keep going high and low depending on the day-to-day market fluctuations and emotions of the investors. So what he did over the course of like 15 or 18 years of running his company, mm-hmm. he kept issuing shares when he thought the share price was substantially overvalued, thereby raking in a whole amount of cash, uh, waiting for the share price to dip, and just buying back his own shares at a low price, while obviously running a very good business. So he thought of his own company's shares as capital in which he can try to raise capital just for the sake of potentially buying it back uh, you know, when the share price dipped. And that made a tremendous amount of returns for the investors who were willing to stay the course and just keep it being invested in the company. Warren Buffett takes a very different approach where he believes that, and that's not to say this is right or wrong, but Warren Buffett takes a different approach where he believes that any investor or anyone who holds a share in his company mm-hmm. is his business partner. Mm-hmm. Because that is how he believes when he in turn goes out and buys shares in another company, he's holding it for the long run, be it Apple, be it Coke, be it you know across the board. Most of his, um, we call it marketable securities because you have the option to sell it, but that's not how he looks at it. He's trying to buy it as if it's a business partner. So from that regard, uh, you know, the way Berkshire Hathaway has been set up and on the first page of his uh, shareholder letter, there's a annual return of the company based on the book value of Berkshire compared to that of the S&P. And this goes all the way back to like the last 40, 60 years, give or take. And it's shown how S&P has basically compounded at an annual rate of close to 10%. Mm-hmm. Vis-a-vis Berkshire has compounded at the rate of 20%. Now, just that 10% per, and, and I, I don't mean just because it's a massive amount, but if you look, if you'd invested a dollar into the S&P back when Berkshire Hathaway was starting to be run by Warren, vis-a-vis right now, because of the, the beautiful effects of compounding your money, the sheer scale and size of the return is like over, is, is multiples that of what you would have in the S&P. So from the aspect of calling, you know, Berkshire Hathaway is a company that you can just invest your money and sit back and relax, mm-hmm. 100%. And that's exactly what Warren Buffett himself has said, that any amount of money that I have given to my family, uh, he's giving 99% to charity, but that remaining 1% that he's given to his family, all he's telling them to do is keep like 90% of that, leave it in Berkshire Hathaway stock, the other 10% put it into U.S. government treasury bonds in case you ever need capital. Because Berkshire Hathaway has not been giving out a dividend for the past 60 years, nor does it intend to, at least when Warren Buffett's at play. They'd rather increase the ownership of the investor to a percentage through buybacks. So that's the policy of Berkshire Hathaway, and it's a fantastic investment. I've held on to it for the past 10 years, and it's treated me better than what, you know, maybe on a percentage-wise slightly lower than the S&P currently, but for the next 20, 30 years, given the constituents of this conglomerate that is Berkshire Hathaway, I personally believe that the rate of return is going to be substantially more, or at least slightly more than the S&P. 
All right. I'm going to play devil's advocate now. Um, we started by talking about Warren Buffett's faith in the economy, in capitalism, in the system in America, for example. But are stock buybacks dangerous for the economy? I mean, on a theoretical level, buybacks as open market repurchases, they make no contributions to the productive capabilities of the firm. Um, you know, they disrupt growth dynamics. Some say that links productivity and pay of the labor force and help result in income instability, anemic productivity. Whoa. Do you think he's contributing to buybacks that could harm the economy? I, I think that's a very valid concern that is applicable to many companies in which management decides to for the advantage of shareholders rather than, you know, be it your own employees or be it the economy as a whole, where if you have a choice between deploying certain additional capital to try and make your company's competitive moat stronger mm. or try to make it more economically viable, mm. instead what you decide is I'm just going to try and, you know, juice up my earnings per share ratio by buying back some shares. Because if your earnings of your company stay stagnant and you keep decreasing the denominator, i.e. the number of shares outstanding, the earnings per share starts going up, which makes Wall Street look at your company more favorably. The, the management might be, the, the incentive to the KPI of management might not be in terms of revenue growth, but it might be in terms of growing earnings per share or growing the share price and hence leading to buybacks being this quote-unquote smarter but yet selfish thing for the management to do. I think in the case of uh, Berkshire Hathaway, it's completely different because they just have too much capital to deploy right now. So, you know, I'll split the question up into two parts. First and foremost, the Berkshire Hathaway angle. These guys have way too much capital for their own good. And when investors, and but investors are obviously happy to leave that to Warren and Charlie to run because, you know, they are one of the best capital allocators of all time. So rather than in, to some other companies, investors, especially activist investors, start clamoring and saying, you know, you have to start giving us dividends. And that's something that Warren Buffett also says. If you're an operating company, then your sole purpose is to first and foremost ensure that you have and you continue to grow your competitive moat. But then all surplus capital should be given to back to the owners of the business, which is the shareholders. Mm. And that can be in the form of uh, dividends or buybacks. Warren decides to go down the path of buybacks because of the capital tax reason. Because in the US, you're taxed on share dividends. Right. And if you're a long-term investor of a company, 20 years ago, if you own 10% of the company and you, know, you fast forward to today, and instead of 20% of the company, you own like 5% of the company right now, you should be thinking of it as you own from one-fifth, you own a quarter of the profitability of this business. And as long as you don't have any capital requirements, like, you know, for your monthly day-to-day living, et cetera, as a long-term investment, this is the best way for a company to, quote-unquote, give back capital to its existing investors. And he gives that in the form of a really good example where, you know, Apple, he purchased it starting from end 2017 or 19. Berkshire owned 5.2% of Apple. Because of the fact that Berkshire Hathaway was buying back its shares, coupled with Apple buying back its shares too, if you had done absolutely nothing from you know, mid-2018 till present day, your investment via Berkshire Hathaway of Apple went from owning 5.2% of Apple 
to 5.7 or 5.8% of Apple, which is a massive increase given that the market cap of Apple has gone up to over a trillion dollars. So that's on the one hand. The other hand, uh, I mean, the second part of the bigger issues that society and the economy and employees and their wages stagnation, et cetera, is coming through, because of buybacks. I think that's 100% right, because you have a whole host of companies right now that have been, you know, juiced up because of private equity investments who are purely looking for investment into the company because of capital returns. And they kind of don't care about what happens to the underlying business in the long run or the employees or the economy. All they care about is putting in their money today and getting a substantial return in the next three to five years. And that's something that's extremely scary. And that's one of his big issues with active financial management because of those active financial managers, a large percentage of them are only looking at this as a short-term play. Put in money today, get money out tomorrow. If it's an increase of 5 or 10% return, I have done my job. He doesn't think about it that way. It's all about the long run for him. So from that regard, I believe that you know, share buyback for Berkshire, as well as Apple for that matter, is fantastic for investors. And because they've already spent or they have ample amounts of extra capital to be able to increase their competitive mode. And I think that's the first and foremost activity that any company should be doing. Brilliantly said, brilliantly said. Before we let you go, Arun, uh, and I have so much more Warren Buffett's letter I want to get to, but I have to switch gears. Another company falling back to earth this morning, Rocket. So Rocket operates several personal finance brands, including Rocket Mortgage. Rocket is the latest US stock listener, uh, listeners to attract the attention of the Reddit chat crowd, as well as hedge funds. Hedge funds have been shorting the stock. The bulls had the upper hand Tuesday, Rocket shares soared 70%. But last night we saw the return of the bears when Rocket shares dropped more than 30% to 28 US dollars a share. Uh, what do you think of Rocket? Does it have more headroom to Rocket? I have no puns. I'm out of puns. <laughs> this is you know, yet another Reddit story, right? Where the company was quite heavily shorted. If you go back in terms of looking at the share price, it was relatively stagnant at $20, give or take shot up to over like $40 over a couple of days, came back passing down to 28 This is something that, you know, if you really want like play money or something and you want to go down that path of not thinking of financial markets as a long-term, as an avenue for long-term capital appreciation, then sure. But the aspect investors are looking at, and, and investors before it used to be a more niche crowd, now, obviously, thanks to technology, it's been democratized, which is a fantastic thing. But this aspect of human greed, hoping to try and catch that wave of, oh, in one day, I can make 50%. And I've seen this across, not just initially it was only LinkedIn. Mm. Then it started going to Facebook. Now it's on Instagram. And now it's on TikTok also. <laughs> like when you start seeing influencers start talking about this, it's something to be very concerned about. And I think uh, Rockefeller, if I'm not mistaken, he went out and he was getting his uh, shoe polished. And the shoe polish uh, boy told him, oh, have you heard of this stock? This is something that's really interesting and I'm thinking of investing in it. He went out the next day and sold basically pretty much all his marketable securities. And then along came 1929. 
So just something to be cautious about. <laughs> no, don't mean to you know ring the doomsday bell, but something to be very careful about in this day and age where social media takes precedence over financial metrics and stability of a business. Oh, great insights as always, Arun. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. My pleasure, Michelle. Thank you for having me. He's Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.